God's people said, amen, amen for the children and amen for the worship. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 John chapter 2. We are in a new series called Life-Changing Apps. We're looking at the applications of the Word of God. It's more specifically the applications found in the book of 1 John and uh, applying them or trying to apply them to our everyday lives. They're very practical applications, uh, very specific applications that we can all learn from and apply to our lives. Uh, I've been having you check in on Facebook and and, uh, say a word, say a scripture. So if you have not done that, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, We're taking a look at, at the apps like we have on our phone and applying those kind of applications from the Word of God into our lives, uh, just like the apps we have on our phone. You know, Now, one of the things I've noticed on social media, and especially on people's smartphones or on their uh, pads or even their laptops, is that all of us have a guilty pleasure application or an app that's on our phone. Now, what I mean by guilty pleasure is we all have an app on there that's our go-to app, Uh, Whenever we're bored, whenever we're stuck in traffic, whenever we're stuck at the doctor's office, uh, whenever we're trying to kill time from something that we have going on, we look on our phone, maybe it's Facebook for some of you, or Instagram, or uh, Candy Crush, or Bejeweled, whatever, or, you know, and you just, you, you open it up, and you start going through it, and you start playing it, and before you know it, it, it time just flies by. Uh, I call those guilty pleasures, I, you know, because they're basically time killers. But what we have to be careful of is if we're not careful, instead of time killers, they become time consumers. And instead of being something that is just a guilty distraction for us, they become something that we can get easily addicted to. And before we know it, the time that we consume playing those things, doing those things, robs us of the time that we should be spending in our intimate relationships. Now, I can remember uh, when Windows first came out and, and computers, and I remember way back when, when Windows first came out in the computer systems, and offices started having to ban solitaire from the office uh, because people were losing their efficiency in the office because they say, well, I'll just play one game. And before you know it, it's been an hour, and instead of working, uh, they're playing. And we do the same thing with uh, distractions in our lives and apps in our lives and things things in our lives that we think uh, this is just going to kill some time, but instead what it does is it kills our relationships. It kills our intimacy that we might have with somebody else. You know, like many things, it starts off as something real innocent, but before we know it, it has control of us instead of us having control of it. And in our study this morning, John's going to warn us about a distraction, a, a guilty pleasure, if you will, that if we're not careful, will rob us of our intimacy with God. It will rob us of our fellowship with God. Now, John has been talking about relationships. It's the central theme to the book of 1 John. He identifies two relationships, our relationship with God and our relationship to other believers. And, you know, he calls our relationship to God walking in the light. And he identifies it by using terms such as intimacy. He says, 
because we are called and we are saved to have an intimate relationship with God. Now, the word intimacy simply means hiding nothing. It is a picture of being completely open in everything that we have, holding nothing back. Uh, Now, we've identified a couple of times the killers or the robbers of intimacy. Now, let me just give those to you again. The two things that most rob our intimacy in every relationship, whether it's with your kids or your spouse or your coworkers or even with God, uh, are, are easily seen in our lives but not easily identified by the things that we do the first thing uh, that probably robs it greater than anything else and the example we have from the bible is when we hide something Uh, if intimacy simply means not hiding anything when we begin to hide something from the person we're intimate with when we begin to disguise something when we begin to hold something back what that does is it becomes a barrier to the intimacy that we were experiencing that's what happened to adam and eve You see, sin for Adam and Eve was not really the worst part. Yes, sin was direct disobedience to God, but what made it worse, what destroyed their intimate relationship with God, when God showed up to talk to them about what they had done, they were hiding. They began to hide who they were. That was the idea of, uh, why are you clothing yourself? They said, because we're naked. Well, who told you we're naked? Uh, When we were intimate, you didn't know you were naked. Now, because of the sin, you've decided to start hiding things. And any time, in any intimate relationship when we begin to hold back when we begin to hide things when we begin to barrier off the people that we're intimate with it kills and it robs our intimacy and the second thing that robs our intimacy is when we begin to give our affections our attention our time our energy our love to someone or something other than the person we're intimate with The Bible calls that idolatry, matter of fact, when it comes to our relationship to God. It's when we begin to place other things or another person in front of that relationship we have, whether it's our spouse or God or others. uh, When we begin to give our love to something else, when we begin to give our heart to something else, intimacy is robbed. Now, either of those things can rob or steal our intimacy. But let me tell you what happens. When we begin to have our intimacy robbed, when we begin to lose our intimacy, the relationship that used to be intimate all of a sudden starts becoming ritual. All of a sudden starts becoming rote. Instead of having this intimacy, this freshness, this walk that we are both growing and learning from, when you're holding something back, when you give your heart to something else, all of a sudden... That walk no longer is the same. We start going through the motions. And we do it in our marriages, and we do it in our relationships at work, and we especially do it in our relationship to God. And what happens is, is as things crowd in and distract us, whether it's a guilty pleasure or something else, we start giving our time to those things, and the things that we were created to be intimate with, our children, our spouse, and our God, and and other believers in the church, all of a sudden diminishes and we start going through the motions. And we talked about it two weeks ago, how we come to church and we go through the motions. We come to church and we put on a good face and instead of being open and authentic and genuine and real, uh, intimate, we, we just put on a pretend face. And what John is going to do in our passage this morning is he is going to identify uh, some of the greatest things that Christians and those that walk with Jesus Christ are distracted by. Some of the greatest things that keep us from walking in the light. And these are the threats that I'm calling in this sermon this morning the the love that God hates because it's the only time in the Bible that we find God using the word hate for something that we love. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start by reading. Now, 
As you get to 1 John chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 12. Uh, there's a set of passages, there's three verses here that don't seem like they fit in to the rest of the passage. They don't seem like they go. It's kind of like there was some poetry added in here. It doesn't really uh, go with what the rest of the theme sounding. Uh, remember, this is all one theme he's working on. Chapters 1 and 2, this idea of walking the light, this idea of uh, having an intimate relationship to God. And all of a sudden, he throws something in here. But it's very important to what he's been saying about walking in the light. It's very important to identifying our intimacy with God, where we are in that process. And so I want you to listen. See if you can pick out how this relates to intimacy. He says, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. For I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Now remember that John hinted in his uh, talk earlier, in the study that we have earlier, that we were justified by Christ. Being justified means that when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he takes us from a place of sin and removes us and places us in the heavenlies. It's something that takes place in the spiritual realm. We become justified. You see, not because of anything I've done. I'm not justified. I'm not made clean. I'm not made right because I did anything. All of that takes place because God, when I put my faith in him justified me but John has been telling us that there is another part of this process and it is called sanctification those are two theological terms and that is the process of walking in the light that is the process of our fellowship with God our intimacy with God and it does require our effort you see sanctification is the process of me becoming more holy me becoming more like Jesus me pursuing after God uh, and and while I can't lose being justified I can lose that fellowship or that intimacy that comes from sanctification. And so what John is doing here and and looking at these different groups, dear children, fathers, young men, is he has identifying people, you and I, that are involved in that process of sanctification, involved in that process of walking in the light. You see, matter of fact, he identifies three stages that happens in every Christian's life. There are three stages, there's more than three, but John identifies three that each of us go through as we walk closer to God. And I've given this illustration to you before. Uh, Let's say a spotlight is over here on this wall and it's shining out. And as it shines out, it, it gets wider and wider. That would be called walking in the light. Before I became a Christian, I was over here in the darkness. I, I didn't even know there was a light. I didn't even know I wanted the light. But when I received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, he took me and placed me on this path. And once I'm on this path, there's nothing that can take me off of this path and put me back over there. The Bible says nothing can remove you from the love of God. Uh, Nothing. No matter what you do in your disobedience, once you're walking in grace, you're on this path. Now this path is to be a process. And what John is emphasizing is that we're all to be moving forward. And he identifies these three characteristics that all of us will find ourselves in. He first says, dear children. Now understand, even though he's using terminology that sounds like it's aged, it's not to do with age. It has to do with spiritual maturity. You can be a spiritual child and be 75 years old. 
You can be a maturing believer and be 18. It, it is talking about your intimacy with God, where you find yourself in that walk with God. And, and so I'm going to use these three chairs to identify the three characteristics, just so you can get a, a visual of where you are. The first group, he says, is the one that's furthest from the light. Now, they're in the light. They've been put over in the light, but they're furthest from the light. He calls them children. We'll call these the spiritually immature. They are spiritual babies. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean somebody that just got saved. It could be somebody that's been saved or been a believer for years. They've just never moved beyond this place. And he describes this place by giving us two characteristics of what spiritual babies are like. And he does it in an encouraging way. He says the first thing is, is that you have been forgiven. What is he doing? He's reminding them that you have been forgiven from the sins that you committed. See, one of the greatest struggles that spiritually immature Christians deal with is this idea of I've been forgiven. So many young believers, as long as they stay in this place, can't grasp the idea that God forgives them. Not just what they did, but what they're doing and what they will do. We struggle with that. It's the idea of grace. And so those of you that are in this place, John is reminding you, listen, as you proceed to walk in the light, remember that you've been forgiven. The second thing he says is that you know the Father. And the idea there of knowing the Father is to remind them that they're a part of the family. See, the second great struggle that happens as we're baby Christians or immature believers or new believers is we struggle with doubting whether or not we're a Christian. Now, all of us in here have doubted whether or not we're a Christian. You had a preacher that got up one time and preached hellfire and whatever, you know, or preached some message and said, maybe you don't know, and if you don't know that you know that you know, then you may be lost. And, and that always happens right here because we're not close to the relationship. We're distant from the relationship. I, I've given the illustration before, like a young couple dating uh you know back when i used to date the dating idea we didn't have cell phones if we were dating we either wrote notes or we called each other on the phone and my phone time at night when i was in middle school and high school was always limited by what my parents allowed me to do and i never was allowed to have a girl call me so if i wanted to talk to a girl because that was too forward right uh so if i had to talk to a girl i had to call them well, there may be a couple of days that I don't talk to the person that I'm supposedly going steady with or that I'm in a relationship with. And if you were to come up and ask me, hey, Rusty, are you going with so-and-so? My response would be, I don't know. Right? You've been there. Why don't you know? You're either going with them or not. I haven't talked to them because I'm distant in my relationship to them. And that's what happens when you stay in this stage of the believer's life. You, you don't know whether or not you're a believer. You struggle with it because there's so much distance and you're just coming to grips with it. And John says, let me remind you, you're a part of the family. You got it. You're in. Stop doubting. Stop letting guilt beat you up and start growing. Start moving. He calls them spiritually babies. And some of you are in this stage and there's nothing wrong with this stage as long as you don't stay in this stage. Now, the second group of people he calls young men. He says, there's a second group of you, and you are young men. These are people that are growing in their faith. He says certain things about the person that's here. He says, uh, you uh, are strong spiritually. You have overcome the evil one is something he says. You see, when you get to this stage, you realize that you're no longer beat up by guilt, but you can say no to sin. You see, when you're here, you still struggle with sin, and sin still beats you up. But as you grow in Christ, you start realizing that sin is now a choice. 
I don't have to give in to sin anymore. I don't have to be defeated by it. He says, you're strong. You see, here I can stand. Here I'm tossed to and fro. That's the terminology that Paul uses. When, when things come up, I, I'm tossed over here and tossed over here. and Temptation comes and I get tossed around. But as I start growing in the light, you see what's happening is the light's shining more on my life and I'm becoming more open. I'm not hiding anything and I'm becoming more intimate with the Savior. And I'm growing. And why is that the case? Because he says in verse 14, because the word of God is alive in you. You see, what makes a difference between right here and right here is the word of God in your life. It's not how many times you come to church, not how well you sing the worship songs, not how many, uh, much money you give to the church. The difference between the two is at this place, this is no longer a book. It's no longer rules. It's no longer ritual. This all of a sudden becomes something that is alive in your life. It starts speaking to you. When you open it, all of a sudden you start realizing, man, that's for me. And what John says is when you come to this place in your life and you're walking in the light, and chairs don't give a good indication because we're not supposed to be sitting, we're walking. But as we're walking in the light, all of a sudden this word becomes alive to you and it makes you strong. You see, this word tells me I can say no to the devil. I can say no to temptation. This word tells me that no matter what is thrown my way, I can stand strong. John encourages those people that are in this growing process, stand strong. Dig into the word. Dive in. Learn more about it. Get involved in it. For those people here... Understand that you're saved by grace. Rejoice in that grace. Rejoice. You are part of the family. Get in the Word of God so you can start growing. And then he gives a third group of people. He calls these people fathers. Now, fathers is not necessarily the terminology except to show maturity. And the fathers, what does it say about them? They know who God is from the beginning. They know God. Remember last week our word for intimacy? It was no. So they don't just know about God, like back here, you're hearing the preacher talk about God, and, you know, we sing about God. Here, we're discovering a little bit more about God because we're reading it ourselves. Man, John's telling us about God, the creator of the universe. No, when you get here, you know him intimately. See, good times are bad. Everything starts changing when you start maturing as a believer. Everything takes on an eternal perspective. It's not about the things that are going on around me. It's about knowing God. And all of us are in one of these three places or somewhere in between. But the goal for us is to be moving forward. And and let me just say this. For those of you that are right here and those of you that are right here, one of your main responsibilities, according to Paul, is to turn around and help the person that's behind you. See, your job is to encourage them on to get to this place. Now, you don't stop growing when you get here because you're not into the light. The place that you stop growing is when you go and embrace Jesus Christ face to face and you begin eternity. But you see, abundant life, joy that John has been telling us about comes in this process of walking in the light. So the question for you and I is, where are you this morning? How long have you been there? See, the problem for the church and the problem for many Christians is some of us are here and we're comfortable here and we've learned to cope here, but we've been here far too long. So where are you in this process and and why are you there? You see, what John is doing with all of this little poetry is he's warning us. You see, what happens is if we stay at any one of these processes, 
for too long without moving forward, we start becoming vulnerable. Any of these places that we drift at, any of these places that we linger in, we start becoming vulnerable to the attacks of the evil one. We start becoming vulnerable of being distracted. We start becoming vulnerable of being pulled away. We start becoming vulnerable for having our intimacy destroyed and wandering from one place to the next. And so John says, let me give you a warning for those of you. If you identify, want us to identify ourselves as walking in the light, this sanctification. But he says, when you find yourself stuck somewhere, you're in trouble. Because here is the greatest distraction for the believers. The greatest guilty pleasure. The greatest thing that keeps us from having an intimate walk with God. Because see when we get down here and, and we're not growing. We get comfortable here. All of a sudden we start looking around at things around us. And the world starts piling in. And so John gives this quick warning. Listen to what he says. Verse 15. For do not love the world or anything in the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that's pretty unequivocal. What does that mean? That means it doesn't give us a choice of either or. And the indication here in the Greek tense is not really do not love. The indication is you are loving the world. So basically what John is saying is stop loving the world. It's kind of the same thing that Jesus says in Matthew when he says no man can have two masters. No man can serve two things. You're either going to love one or hate the other or despise one and love the other. You can't love God and the world at the same time. So what John is saying is the greatest distraction for most people in the church that robs them of their intimacy, that keeps them seated in one of these places or even distracts them over here to where on the fringe of the light is their love of the world. James tells it even more clearly. James says this, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? For anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And this is a big deal for God. Because you see, the world is not just some passive thing out there. The world is competing with God for your love and affection. The world is competing for your attention. The world is competing for your heart. And so what God knows and what John knows is that the moment we get distracted, the moment we get stale in our walk, the moment it becomes ritual, the moment we start hiding things and are not growing in Christ and our intimacy wanes, the world's and its attentions pile up. Now what does he mean by world? There's three words in the New Testament that are used for world. The first one indicates the cosmos. The world, the planets, the stars, the earth. And that's not what God's meaning because the Bible says that the earth in its form is God's creation and we're to love it. Second thing is to mean mankind. The word world used mankind. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Now that can't be it because we learned last week that our responsibility is to be intimate and to love sacrificially those around us. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the systems of the world, the philosophies of the world, the direction of the world. Matter of fact, John clears it up later in this passage, 1 John chapter 5, later in this book. He says that we know we are children of God and the world is under the control of the evil one. So what is he saying when he says stop loving the world? He says stop loving this selfish, me first, greed-driven environment that you and I live in. 
Because if you're not careful, it will capture your heart and steal your intimacy. Now, John gives us three examples that we all fall into that may sound simple, that may sound innocent, like those guilty pleasures we struggled with, but they can all destroy us. The thing I want you to see is that uh, it can happen to you and I at any stage along the way. Matter of fact, uh, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy about a man named Demas. Demas was one of his missionary buddies. Demas had gone with Paul on his second missionary journey. And, and Paul writes to Timothy telling him this. Listen, Demas, because he loved the world, deserted me. You see, so all of us here today say, well, i got no problem with the world. Well, you need to open your eyes. Because all of us, any one of us, no matter where you are, spiritual maturity, missionary, you can fall to the lure and the temptations of the things of this world. So how do we do that? Well, John uses three illustrations. Listen to what he says. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, some of your versions say the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father but from the world. For the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. So he gives us three examples here of how the world lures us, how the world distracts us, how the world steals our enemy. He talks about the lust of the flesh. These are the desires and the impulses of our flesh. See, all of us were created with needs. But there's a difference between needs and desires. He's talking about the flesh, this this old body that we live in. And you need to understand, Paul tells us in Galatians 5, that there is a battle going on in your spirit between flesh and spirit over who controls your body. Because your body says, I want to do this. And the world says, if it feels good, do it. And the world says, if you like it, do it. Who cares who it hurts? If it feels good, it's all up to you. If you rationalize it and you justify it, do it. And the Spirit says, no, your job, your responsibility is to pursue God. But you see, the lust of the flesh is this desire inside of us to give over to the, the impulses of our flesh. Your flesh says, eat it. Your flesh says, do it. Your flesh says, go after this. And any time those impulses get out of control, they start gaining control. Amen? We've all been there, hadn't we? It's the, it's the fine line between eating one Krispy Kreme donut and eating a box of Krispy Kreme donuts, right? You look at that donut and you say, listen, my flesh is craving it. My flesh wants that donut. And your spirit says, but your waistline says you only need one. And so you say, well, I can just eat one. And you eat one. And that desire, that craving in your spirit, it starts saying that lust of the flesh starts saying, eat more. That one melted in your mouth. Two will be better, right? You got an extra dozen, your family will never know. Put them all away, right? You get down, there's three left. I better get rid of those three so they won't even know. I can dump the box off before I get home. That's what happens when the flesh takes over. And I gave you a fun little illustration, but it happens the same way sexually. And it happens the same way materially. You see, it starts off with something so innocent, a need. And then all of a sudden, those lusts of the flesh starts trying to take over. And if the spirit's not in control, then the flesh wins. And that battle goes on all the time. You've got to learn to discipline our flesh, to tell this body, you're not in control. You don't make decisions. God makes decisions for me. Yes, I know that feels good. Yes, I know that everybody else is doing it. Yes, I know it probably won't hurt anything. But the Spirit is in control, not the flesh. 
Because the moment you give the flesh control, it will control you. And you'll be out of control. And what happens is, whatever you start lusting after, desiring after in the flesh, it will rob you of your intimacy with God. Because that will become your idol, your love. It'll become what you have to start hiding to rationalize and justify. He says the lust of the flesh. Then he says the lust of the eyes. How is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes differently? See, the lust of the eyes is the opposite of being content. It is not just giving in to the desires of the flesh. It is looking out and thinking that having something else will satisfy you. See, that's a dangerous place that the world tells us we all need to be, right? That if you buy a bigger house, if you have another car, if you get this job, if you get this much money, if you do this thing, if you make straight A's or you get into this college or whatever it is, you'll be better. And so all of a sudden we start buying into that, thinking that if we can just have that thing, my life will be so much better. If I can just have that, then everything will be okay, right? My life will be solved. But what happens is we start trying to fill a God-created hole. You see, you've got this hole in you that only God can fill. And we start filling that God-created hole with other stuff, thinking it's going to fill it up, and it just doesn't. And we're left even more empty. And instead of pursuing God, we're pursuing all of these things. Because you see what happens is, if that house doesn't make you feel better, then I need a bigger house. Or I need a different house. Or I need a different relationship. And we keep putting it into this hole thinking we're finally sometimes going to be satisfied when the only thing that satisfies it is this intimacy with God says be careful buying into the lies of this world that tell you that if you just have that you'll be satisfied then there's the last thing he says here the lust of the eyes and the boasting of what he has and does and this boasting of what he has and does i'm going to take a different take on it because see this means being proud about what you have and who you are you see i believe what he's saying is one of the greatest dangers for christians is finding your identity in what you have and who you are instead of having your identity in Christ. See, some of us, our whole identity, our whole self-worth, our whole who we are is wrapped up into something we do or something we have. I'm a cheerleader, football player, businessman, teacher, successful mom, good dad, great-grandpa, and you see, what happens is those things aren't bad and they're, they're good, matter of fact, for most of our lives. But what happens is we start wrapping our identity, who we are, into that thing. And what, what Paul says and what John is saying is that all of a sudden those things become who we are and who we identify with instead of Jesus Christ. And the danger of that is, John says it real quickly here, is that the world and its desires are passing away. That thing, those things, that job, that identity can be taken away. And I've never seen believers so shattered as when they've placed all of their hope and all of their identity in something that they've done or something that they have, and that's been snatched away. Everything they are is wrapped up into this job and being a professional at this job. And then they lose that job, and their life is shattered. You see, who I am is not identified by what I have in my wallet or what the title is on my door. Who I am is who I am in Jesus Christ. 
a child of the king, someone pursuing an intimate relationship with him. Because John says, guess what? Why are you willing to throw all of this away for something that is just temporary? Why are you willing to invest your heart and your time and your effort and your energy and your self-esteem in something that will last that long instead of investing it in something that is going to be eternal? That's the question for you and I today. I used to tell teenagers when I worked with students, I, I, you know, as someone who has lived there and who has walked it and who has done it, why would you compromise who you are to impress people that you won't even know five years from now? I mean, how many of us did that? Don't you raise your hand because all of us, but how many of us did that when we were high school or college? We were so worried about being liked or so worried about impressing others or so worried about fitting in that we compromised our values, that we compromised who we were, that we did things that we knew we shouldn't have done to be accepted by that group and you've never seen those people again. Hadn't talked to them. You don't care what they think about you, but yet in the moment your identity was wrapped up into that thing. You see what John is warning us, what he closes here with is the idea that this is the abundant life. This is the fulfilling life. This is where he is calling us to. All of those other things become distractions and they rob our intimacy. One of my life verses that I grabbed a hold of in college came from Jim Elliott the martyred missionary, the husband of Elizabeth Elliot, he says, he is no fool who gives up that which he could never keep to gain that which he could never lose. See, God created you for intimacy. God created you to walk in the light. What's stealing yours? What's stalling you? Let's pray. I believe some of you this morning have stalled on a stage. You've sat down, compromised, made excuses, walked away. This morning, God wants you to start over, come back, begin again. Something's robbing your intimacy, and this morning, He wants to renew that. I pray you let Him do that. Father, bless us in Your name. Amen. We're going to worship. You do business with God. If you're interested in being a part of the church, I'm going to open the doors of the church and love to introduce you, tell you how you can do that. Uh, also, if you'd like to pray, the altars will be open. But let's just worship for a moment and grasp a hold of that intimacy. Would you stand with us? like a